1980, Julian Simon bet Malthusian doomsday prophet Paul Ehrlich that resource scarcity would not plague our world due to overpopulation. He made this bet based upon the claim by Ehrlich that England would not exist by the year 2000. Simon challenged Ehrlich to pick any five non-government controlled materials and bet that they would not rise in price due to too many people clamoring for too few goods. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Ehrlich was allowed to choose the materials and the date. He chose copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, and set the bet 10 years in the future. Fast forward 10 years, and not only did those goods not increase in price, but they all decreased in price, all while the population rapidly increased. It's all right, I hope your firings go really well. It's fun to see a dystopian anti-human like Ehrlich slam dunked on, but the startling part of Ehrlich's story is not just that he was openly schooled by Simon but that he would go on to be basically wrong about every single prediction he's made in the history of his entire career. Ain't nobody got time for that. In his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Ehrlich announced to the world that the 21st century would be one of poverty and mass starvation brought about by overpopulation. In 1970, he said that in 10 years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct and large areas of coastline will have to be evacuated because of the stench of dead fish. Recently on 60 Minutes, he continued his losing streak by stating this. Of course, are the biodiversity uh, that we're wiping out. Uh, humanity is very busily sitting on a limb that we're sawing off. I shouldn't have to tell you not to take this quack seriously after his many public failures, but here's the real problem. People still do. But the people are retarded. He and others like him have convinced a whole generation of people that blocking traffic somehow stops fossil fuels. I mean, you know, while their engines are running anyway. It's even convinced a generation of people that they should glue their hands to the pavement and destroy priceless works of art. And somehow that will prove something. In light of that, I want to share with you what the president of COP28, which is a climate summit that took place last week, what he said in the past. And there is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. Please help me, show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio for sustainable socioeconomic development, unless you want to take the world back into caves. Whoops, somebody said the quiet part out loud. If you didn't catch what he just said, he told the world that science tells us that stopping all fossil fuels tomorrow wouldn't even drop the planet's temperature more than one degree Celsius, and it would totally ruin the world economy. I bet you'd never guess what happened after this. If you guessed, people started to rethink their opinions. I mean, come on especially not in America. Who are you kidding? That's really cute that you would think that though. Bless your heart. Nope. It, this is 2023 and we cancel people who defy the narrative rather than rethink our positions. So instead of respecting this man's obvious slip into reality, he had to go on an apology tour. Everything this presidency has been working on, continues to work on, is focused on and centered around the science. I honestly think that there is some confusion out there. Notice what he didn't say here. 
I was wrong about my original statement, and the science does not tell us that stopping drilling immediately will actually make much of a difference. Nope. Instead, I was right, but please don't fire me because this climate summit is where we make most of our diplomatic drilling deals for the UAE, which, by the way, is where the conference took place. But don't worry, Kamala Harris was also on hand to set things in order. And you can trust, just like she did with the border, she's on top of things. We have also placed equity at the center of all of our work, investing in marginalized communities, which are often hardest hit by extreme weather and bear a disproportionate burden from fossil fuel pollution. Damned racist carbon emissions. I'm so glad Kamala has a keen eye toward people of color because her desire to eliminate all fossil fuels at the tune of $1 trillion over the next 10 years will wreck our economy and destroy any progress the third world has made, which I'm not sure if you understand. Uh, they're on their way to industrialization, and most of these nations are mostly populated by people of color. If you want to know why Christians don't take you seriously when you talk about Christian nationalism, by the way, this is one of the reasons, because you guys lie about everything, and truth-tellers are forced to publicly apologize, as we see. And we can't argue that it doesn't matter anymore. Lying about climate change is just one way that our culture has warped everyone's mind. I know some will argue correlation causation fallacy here with what I'm about to say, but, but just hear me out, and at the end of the day, if you still think that, I'm fine with it. It doesn't mean I'm wrong, though. The reason we want anthropogenic climate change to exist so bad is because we have gotten rid of the divine. Our godless secular age needs to control something. And so the decline of religious adherence has given rise to climate worship. Now, I know we're not, quote unquote, worshiping the climate per se, but we certainly are in love with the idea that we are in control of it somehow. How else do you explain the irrational and often deadly fixation on climate change as though human beings had control over acts of God in nature, if not for a group of people who have no sense of sovereignty in their lives anymore? Don't take my word for it. Look at the famous atheist Nietzsche. He asked the question, with God's blood on our hands, who will be able to clean it off? In other words, are there residual effects to our secularism that we may not be able to recover from? The answer is clear. Everybody is worshiping something. The only question is, are you worshiping the right thing? And we'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if this show has been beneficial to you in the past, please write a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Now, I want to encourage you to do one other thing. I know you're in shopping mode right now, and maybe you even need some last-minute gifts. I can promise you that the best place to buy any gifts, especially for that significant other, that spouse in your life that loves all-natural health and beauty products, that has been robbed, at least in a good way, uh, for their conscience sake, of Target and needs to replace that with something else, I highly encourage you to check out our Herbal Alchemy store, which is your one-stop shop for all health and beauty products, even if you're a dude. They've got some dude stuff like man face, aftershave, 
and all sorts of other things. I highly encourage you to even check out Arise, which is an all-natural energy supplement that will help you kick coffee out of your kitchen if you're interested in doing that. Suffice to say, we've got tons of stuff for your last-minute Christmas gifting ideas. So in order to go to our store, you need to go to the link that's on the screen or the description of this podcast where you can find our Herbal Alchemy store. When you do that, not only are you supporting a great Christian company, but some of the proceeds from your purchase today will go back to benefit us here at IndieThinker. So if you're thinking about last-minute gift ideas and you don't want to sell your soul in the process, then you need to check out our Herbal Alchemy store. Well, Christmas is right around the corner and the war on Christmas is at full pace. But oddly enough, not only are there people out there who are fighting Christmas and calling it neo-colonial, but there's also people who are fully embracing Christmas, but just in the weirdest way possible by trying to paganize it a little bit just to make themselves feel a little bit more festive during the holiday season. And just recently, a Forbes article came out with some reasons to have hope for the holidays. And because I'm such a kind person, I want to share those reasons to have hope with each and every one of you now. Quote, the Paris Agreement is a global effort to reset our carbon emissions. Unless you are living under a rock or in a haze of ideological misinformation, Christmas is about Jesus. Nope, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, I misread that. Uh, unless you're living under a rock, it is clear that increasing greenhouse gas emissions are changing our climate system. Such changes are impacting weather, sea level, agricultural productivity, national security, water supply, public health, infrastructure, reliance, and more, and basically everything else that I could put on a list. Uh, you'll have to forgive some of my ad-libbing here. As part of the Paris Agreement, a global stock take was created to calculate how much lying, I mean, progress countries are making in cutting greenhouse emissions and standing up financial mechanisms to support adaptation or resiliency. Okay, most of that was so boring that I had to try to uh, spice it up a little bit with my own little uh, commentary. But suffice to say, I'm going to synthesize the reasons to have hope this Christmas based upon this Forbes article. It is as follows. You are supposed to have hope this Christmas because of the Paris Agreement, the release of the U.S. National Climate Assessment, renewable energy usage is increasing, and because young people are leading summits about the climate. Now, I know what you're thinking. Um, this guy is an absolute nerd or totally out of touch with what the word hope means, and probably both. Forgive me if I don't rejoice alongside of him that Greta Thunberg is leading the charge and that we have assessment tools to talk about um, anthropogenic global warming. So, for, by the way, let's also talk about the repercussions of some of this supposed hope. Uh, in 2021, Google searches for climate anxiety soared by 565%. That's an interesting statistic. As depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation increases, let me please offer some real hope and help to you during this holiday season, beyond the fact that Jesus was born, which is the main place where you can find it. But uh, let me take you to a blast of the past that will try to help alleviate some of the anxiety around the climate. You'll remember back in the 90s, if you were around then, something that we hear little about today. When Al Gore wasn't feverishly inventing the internet for all of us to enjoy, he was creating documentaries about a subject. And that subject, again, is something that was well-placed for that big-haired 90s phase, but is not around very long. And it is this idea that global warming is happening because some of those big-haired women keep on obnoxiously, you know, putting 
hairspray in their hair and they are puncturing holes in, in the ozone layer and eventually all those holes are gonna heat up the globe and we will all die. Fast forwarding a little bit, Dr. James Hansen agreed with that assessment, head of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, advisor to Al Gore and guru of global warming theory. He said this, that President-elect Obama had only about four years to save the world from imminent peril due to ice melt and expected sea level rise. Now I looked at my watch and I consulted math wizards and I found out that none of that happened, like at all. But something else happened also, the great threat of anthropogenic global warming, which we don't hear about very often. Something else took its place, something that's rather vague and hard to define, something called climate change. In the present, no one even utters the words global warming, and instead everywhere we say climate change. Why is that? Well, it's probably because in 2009, the Climatic Research Unit, or the CRU, at Ang Anglia University revealed <laughs> leaked emails that the most influential scientists behind global warming theory were trying to manipulate data about global temperatures in order to make their predictions stand. Now everywhere global warming has given way to the much more banal and abstract climate change. So what happened to anthropogenic global warming? In a word, nothing, because it never really existed. Is there global warming? Yes, and global cooling just like there always has been. CO2 has been rising, but there hasn't been significant warming since 1995. And temps have not increased at all since 1998. In fact, in 2007, we had the coldest global temperature in a decade. So here's the point. The people believing in fairy tales were never Christians. It was those with an agenda rather than truth. And they're doing the best they can now to try to provide some sense of hope to a generation of people that they've absolutely lied to. Now, you might think to yourself that the best way to do that is to grab a hold of an existential anchor, something for the soul, you know, maybe something like religion, but no, of course, the experts, the scientists who never lie about anything, they cannot force themselves to actually admit that Christianity in particular, especially around the holiday season, may be a benefit to people. Rather, they have to try to fabricate some really ridiculous things to provide hope for people during the holiday season because they know that their ideas are basically injuring people. Now, let me just say one final thing about all of this, because I think the biggest issue with anthropogenic global warming and climate change and all of the conversation that we're having about it right now, simply, I think this is a substitute for religion in this way. I think the vast majority of people need something to believe in. And if they have God out of the picture, well, then they have to believe in themselves and they have to believe that they somehow can control what's happening right in front of them, even if they can't. They no longer have prayer, they no longer have faith, and they no longer have real hope rooted in an existential anchor. So therefore, they need to convince themselves that they have a power that they don't really possess. I mean, it's really cute when you kind of think about it. All of these people want to put on their little orange vests and pretend that they're Superman when they glue themselves to the street but actually they're deeply deluded as to what's really going on all around them. They've been lied to and only the truth will make them free. But in order to realize that, they've actually got to go to the guy who actually said that, which I don't have much hope in unless something deeply changes with our society. Now I want to go on to our next story, which kind of addresses that idea of where we get our hope 
in and how many people have turned away from religion because of things that they see in the Bible. Now, typically I would save something like this for our final segment, Bible study with Democrats, but I promised that I would do this and I have something else I wanna save to the end. So I do wanna take a moment to go through one of the most controversial passages of scripture. And this was highlighted in the debate that took place between cosmic skeptic Alex O'Connor and Ben Shapiro in their debate. I would say in the one place where Ben Shapiro kind of had uh, the better taken of him or however you would say that. But whenever Alex Connor got the better of him was in the conversation of slavery. And Alex brought up this verse of scripture from Numbers 31. And I want to share it with you now so that you can kind of get the context for it. So check it out. That maybe eventually we should be moving towards the abolition of the idea of owning human beings as private property. He just had to be done. I still think it's the case that he would not permit a flat immorality, and I think you would agree with that too. And so when I when I open the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew Bible, and, and when I look at the texts saying that you, you, if you, when Numbers 31 has Moses instruct the, the slaughter of the Midianites saying, kill all the men, and this time the women get killed too, but not the women who haven't slept with a man. And why might that be? And it says that, you know, keep them for yourselves. And I, I hear all the time that this is some kind of liberalizing process. Maybe it's because, you know, these, these people wouldn't survive on their own. It's some kind of protective measure to make sure that you're, you're looking after them. If that's the case, then why does it only apply to the virgins? That seems a little bit suspect to me. Now, next to the climate activists that are doomsdayers on par with kind of the radio preacher who has predicted 50 different times that the world is going to end and then it hasn't and then still has a career somehow and is selling books after all that. On par with how much I love that is I love people who quote the Bible when they're a skeptic because you can almost always rest assured that when they do so, they are going to radically pull the Bible out of context. So all I can tell you here is that that is exactly what Alex O'Connor has done. So bear with me for a moment as I share with you Numbers 31 and what it actually says. So it starts off like this. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So in other words, the Lord is calling for battle. Now, on the show before I've argued, and I'm not really going to take the time to do it today, but I'm going to argue for just warfare, at least enough to just tell you that I don't think there's even a honest skeptic on the planet that would tell you war is never necessary in this fallen world in which we live in. I think everybody would, for the most part, agree that there is a time and a place for war. Hopefully you would agree to to a degree with the fact that World War II needed to be fought because Hitler needed to be stopped. And so war has a place. The question is, by what moral basis can we judge whether or not a war is just or not? And this is where the skeptic has a real problem because they've totally stripped themselves of any kind of moral framework that comes from any rational basis. They say human flourishing, but at the end of the day, that, that doesn't really even mean anything. Um, they, they never really truly define what they mean by human flourishing or what justification would really merit what human flourishing looks like and how do you not argue for the annihilation of people with genetic defects if you're really after human flourishing after all that's not really that flourishing for people if you have defects and if you have handicaps um, so all I'm saying is that there's an argument for some pretty horrific things if you don't have a moral basis to undergird the ideas that you have. And so people would argue the same thing about religion. They would say religion is the place where all these wars happen, blah, 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 blah. So I'm just saying that uh, you don't need religion for, for war. And in this case, in Numbers 31, it may not be what you think it is in terms of God calling for war. Is God really a genocidal maniac or is there something more at play? So 
I want to continue to read and go on to verse 14 when the Israelites come back from battle. It says this, Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands and commanders of hundreds. Why was he angry for them after they returned from battle? Well, this is why. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourself every girl who has never slept with a man. So let me give you the appropriate context there. Essentially, Alex charges God with killing all the women except for the virgins, because of course you want to keep those prime virgins for yourself. And it's pretty convenient of these people to kill all these women and all these children and only leave for themselves the virgins so they can rape them. So God in this passage of scripture, according to Alex, is not only encouraging warfare, bloodlust, the, the death of women, but also the rape of virgins and the and infanticide because he's killing all the children. Okay, so let me give you an alternative interpretation, not based upon my hatred for religion, but actually trying to faithfully interpret the text because Alex conveniently left something out that I just read to you and maybe you caught it. The reason that Moses, and essentially we can assume God is calling for uh, the, the death of these women is because of something they participated in. And what did they do? Well, uh, according to scripture, they marched naked into the camp to try to pull men away from God and to worship idols. And then they did that so that they could then kill all the men and destroy the Israelites. So these women used their sex appeal and their um, OnlyFans accounts to try to pull Israelite men away. And essentially, what we see here in Numbers 31 is that these women are not innocent women who are being killed just simply because they've had sex before. And the reason the virgins are being kept safe is not because they're virgins, it's because they didn't participate in the evil act that these other women did. Now again, that goes back into, what is it, verse 16, where it, they where it tells us that they followed Balaam's advice. Maybe you'll remember the story of Balaam, that false prophet who tried to turn God's people away from God and then was prophesying and ended up telling the guy that was trying to pay him to, um, to turn God's people away from God, um, ended up telling him, hey, they're not going to do it ultimately. You're wasting your time and you're wasting your money. Um, and then the king insisted, uh, and of course, this is uh, Balak. Um, he insisted, and, and then he paid Balaam to come up with the idea of trying to get these women to go in and, and use their nakedness to try to entice these men. Essentially, um, these women are not innocent, suffice to say, and the virgins are. So God is actually being just here by saying, keep the virgins uh, safe and don't kill them. Don't hold them chargeable for the things that other people did. Now, I find this interesting, even though this may not be satisfying to some people because there's still death at the end of this thing. Um, what I find interesting, though, is not only the ability to fully take things out of context, but also the inability to be able to use nuance here to tell that God is not indistinguishably killing people. What we get here, if you get anything, is the idea that God is carefully choosing these people for this act simply because of evil things that they have done. Now, uh, as far as the death of children, it's very interesting here that the word used here is not for small children, but the, the word for boys. In other words, if you kill these um, kids' mothers for the evil work that they have done, 
you're you're going to have to kill these boys because they will later come back and try to kill you. Now, again, you may not like that very much, and it may not sit well with you, but we're also speaking about a different time. Um, and we're also speaking about a time in which the West didn't have as much influence as it does now, which, by the way, has been largely influenced by the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And so now we're living in a much more civilized age where this kind of stuff doesn't really happen, you know, where, uh, where people aren't, you know, revenge killing and bringing hordes of warriors into cities to try to kill whole people groups. Thankfully, by and large, that's not something that, ha that happens much anymore. Now, certainly we're still kind of taking babies to pagan altars to sacrifice them as they did in the Old Testament. But there are some things that have improved because of Christianity's influence, especially in the West. And so ultimately, all I'm saying is that if you put yourself within the context of Scripture, you can clearly see that what God is doing here is not indiscriminate killing, but, but, but simply charging people, um, making them accountable for something that they have done. Now, the second part beyond the context is just this, is that if you want to talk about slavery and you want to talk about maybe even taking these virgin women who ultimately probably would have just suffered and died of starvation if it weren't for um, the Israelites taking them into their camp, I, I think it's important for us to, to also talk about the ultimate overarching claim of kind of slavery here, um, whether or not these virgins were slaves or willful participants marrying uh, the men that eventually they married. We don't know. But we hear very often, regardless, that uh, slavery is all in the Bible and it's because the Bible is a neo-colonial, patriarchal, uh, and white somehow, uh, even though these people were Jewish, um, uh, at least will be Jewish once the Israelite, uh, Israelites are destroyed, sorry Mormons, and then the Jews are left. Uh, suffice to say, uh, we're told all these things about the Bible, and we're told that the Bible endorses slavery. It talks about slavery, even in the New Testament, it talks about being a good servant. Haven't you ever read the book of Philemon and all of that stuff? Okay, so... Please just let me justify that real quick with just some simple facts from history. The kind of indentured servitude we see in the Bible is not the kind of chattel slavery we see in the transatlantic slave trade. Yes, Christians in the transatlantic slave trade had slaves because they are people at the end of the day and flawed. They didn't have slaves because the Bible justified slavery, the kind of quote unquote slavery that we see in the Old Testament and even in the new, has more to do with indentured servitude. And if you really want to know what indentured servitude is, I would highly encourage you to check it out for yourself. But I can tell you this, essentially indentured servitude is a way more humanitarian means of welfare than the way that we put people on welfare today. So the way slavery worked in the past, in the Bible, and the kind of slavery that the Bible endorses, again, is a kind of indentured servitude that says, hey, if you need a job, uh, maybe perhaps you need to take out a debt and you can't pay that debt back. The way that you can pay it back is you can go serve for the person who you borrowed the money from. Maybe you're not able to produce the kind of revenue, but you need the money to survive. Well, what we will do then to try to help you pay off that debt is you can come and you can work that debt off. Essentially, what's being 
done in indentured servitude is giving people work rather than just giving them handouts. I would argue that the welfare system of the present very often is dehumanizing and it doesn't give people a hand up, it just gives people handouts. It doesn't really help them truly develop a skill or a trade or get a job that, so that they can create wealth on their own and then produce more of it. What it does is it makes them dependent upon the government. See, God didn't want to do that. And, uh, and so indentured servitude was used as a means by trying to help people get to the place where they can create their own wealth. And then this is even mentioned by Alex O'Connor in one of his arguments. Um, and a, I, apparently he just doesn't know the Bible well enough as a skeptic to really be able to, uh, to interpret it well. But he talks about the year of Jubilee, when slaves would be let go, totally scot-free. So after seven years of being a slave, you could, even if your debt wasn't fully paid for, you could be totally let free. And that's something that God declared in the Bible. Now, Alex's comments is just simply, well, why put people in slavery in the first place? Yes, he's, he's letting them go and he's, he's ending that, that slavery. But why even uh, make them slaves in the first place? Well, because he's actually not making them a slave in the sense that you think he's making them a slave. God is in, encouraging a kind of humanized version of welfare that if we looked at in the present, it might be actually beneficial to, to us and might be beneficial to the people who actually need the help. I say all that to say this simply, that you may not agree with my interpretation, but what you can't agree to is developing your own facts about portions of scripture that you don't have enough wisdom to actually interpret the way it was intended to be interpreted. And I just wish atheists had enough humility to admit when they don't know something. But then again, if they did, they may not be atheists. They may quickly become theists. All right, let's jump into our final segment, Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. On the show and in this segment, we've been tracking a rapid rise in progressive Christians as these charlatans hold glitter masses. And let us confess our faith today in the words of the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. Beyonce masses. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna survive. Keep on surviving. Yo, I'm out of breath because we sing Beyonce in church. <laughs> and other pagan celebrations of the self. If you want to know the real problem with progressive Christianity, it is that there's nothing Christian about it. You could call yourself a million different things, but just don't call yourself Christian. Progressives hold to a postmodern view of reality and don't follow the law of non-contradiction. Therefore, they're constantly making fools of themselves as they try to hold to biblical ideas while also holding to very liberal postmodern ideas. They throw out anything in the Bible they don't like and by all means bend over backwards, sometimes literally, to make room for homosexual Christianity. In other words, if you can be out of step with the Bible, historic Christianity, and logic, you'll fit right in with progressive Christians and progressive churches. Perhaps the most egregious thing with these people just doing their thing is that they, like all bullies, prey upon the ignorance of other well-meaning people, authentic Christians who just don't know enough about progressives to call them on their crap. Those who fall quickly for the Jesus was all about love and don't push back because they're usually met with definitions like love is love and a woman is a person who feels like a woman, 
they lose interest quickly and walk away from the kind of progressive Christians peddling their nonsense and don't really dig down deep enough to realize how ridiculous it is. But that kind of incoherence and redefinition of basic words and meanings is kind of par for the course for progressives, and they're probably after trying to disorient people. Um, and that certainly seems to be what they're doing in a new documentary on Christian nationalism. Rob Reiner, no progressive Christian, but one who utilizes the useful idiots of the progressive movement, just created a new documentary called God and Country, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Here's the trailer. America and Christianity are like baseball and apple pie, and we celebrate them together. I was 16, 17 years old when I became a Christian. I'm an evangelical minister. I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm a Christian nationalist. I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. Is Christian nationalism Christian? Um, no, it isn't. We should be blazing forth as a countercultural example, and instead, we're leading the charge of malice and division. Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a means to an end, that end being some form of authoritarianism. Being a Christian is about the values of inclusion. Christian nationalism is certainly not based on the values of the gospel. God wants America to be saved. They're told over and over and over again that you're in danger. You need to fight if you don't want to lose your country. We are in a civil war between good and evil. This is not a movement about Christian values. This is about Christian power. What happens to the people who don't believe this stuff? We are on the precipice. God is on our side. We're taking our nation back. Maybe... If you're watching this, maybe you recognized the face of or listening the voice of Phil Vischer there. Now, if this work is anything like his past work, this documentary should be utterly hilarious. And I would be laughing if it weren't so ridiculous. There's a couple of problems with the continuing rise in claims to Christian nationalism being a problem in America, and I want to point out some of them for you now. And if you end up watching this film, I want you to, I want to encourage you to be looking for them. And the first problem is this, is that the left and liberals rarely define what they mean by Christian nationalism. Now, I will try to do it for you here since I will not get any help from them. But based upon their claims, I think they mean one of two things. On the extreme, they mean a group of people who want to develop a theocratic nation uh, that makes room only for Christians and we're going to, you know, mass deport everybody who refuses to be a Christian in the country. And so only Christians will be allowed in, in America. Now, of course, the number of people who actually believe that are some total of zero, basically, in, in America. But they probably more generally just believe something like this, that Christians think Christian nationalists, anyway, think that their ideas and their morals should shape this nation. And this is a secular nation, and we shouldn't allow Christians to influence this country because of separation of church and state and all of that. Well, here's a major problem within thinking that we are a secular nation that uh, avoids religious ideas at all costs. First of all, not only is that historically illiterate, because that was not true from the beginning of our founding, but also it doesn't really justify 
why we should allow secularists and secular humanists to have their way with the nation. Why should their version of the nation shape America? Now, please don't argue that secularists don't have their own version of reality and their own version of morality that they want to use to try to shape this nation. They're the only impartial ones and Christians just aren't. Forgive me uh, for not believing total nonsense. It is true that we all have a bias. We all have an ax to grind, if you wanna say. We all have a desire for this nation. That's why this nation really wasn't a secular nation to begin with. It was a pluralistic nation where the best ideas should win. So the idea of eliminating Christianity from the public square is nothing more than a secular agenda to try to shape this nation in their image. And I don't see why we should allow those people to shape this nation according to their image while we are told that we can't shape it according to ours. Now, the second thing is this, is that they also, when they finally do get down to defining what they mean by Christian nationalism, whether it is deporting people who aren't Christians or shaping this nation according to Christian principles, which obviously it was done to begin with, um, the reason they don't really get down to really defining that is because when they do, they'll find that in either of the two cases, it largely doesn't exist. The vast majority of Christians have enjoyed the fact that they make up the majority and therefore are basically oblivious to what's going on in the nation around them. I have to spend hours of my show each week trying to convince Christians to engage in the culture war so that they will actually take the future of our nation very seriously as a tool that can help people come to know God, but also more importantly, as a tool that can help the livelihood and the well-being of people, which as Christians I would think we would care about. So needless to say, by and large, what they, what the left believes Christian nationalism does not exist. And now I will do one step further for those people who want to argue about whether or not Christian, Christian nationalism is a threat, and I'll actually provide some evidence for you that they never care to do. And I'll show you a Pew Research poll that looked at a group of people and asked them the following questions. First and foremost, they asked, is America a Christian nation? Now, 60% of people said that it was. That's the majority of the people polled. 60% said that America was originally a Christian nation. And then they asked, should America continue to be a Christian nation still? And 51%, so a, a slimmer majority, but a majority nonetheless, said that America was and America is still a Christian nation and should remain a Christian nation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean mass deportations? Does that mean making sure that everybody thinks just like Christians? Well, let's hear what these people had to say according to this poll. Now, 83% said judges should not bring their own biases into, biases into major cases. 77% said churches should not endorse a candidate. And 67% said churches should stay out of political matters altogether. So by and large, the majority of people polled here said America is a Christian nation and it should remain a Christian nation. And then they went on to say, but that does not mean that we are influencing um, who the candidates are, or who uh, Supreme Court justices are, uh, simply from a Christian perspective. So even they didn't want that to happen. Now, I will argue the opposite again, that I think that Christians should be allowed on the Supreme Court. And I think the most qualified people should be there regardless of if they're Christians or not. 
I think churches should be willing to not necessarily endorse a particular candidate, but that simply comes from the fact that the vast majority of our candidates just really don't um, don't really live up to the kind of scrutiny that the church should have for a candidate. But I think we should be speaking about candidates in the church and those people who are running for political office. And we should be warning churches against people who hold basically non-Christian views, such as the murder of babies, which should be a pretty non-controversial thing, but because of how secular our nation is, of course it isn't. Um, now, I could go on and on and just say, simply put, regardless of my interpretation of things or, um, or not, the poll here suggests that the vast majority of people don't want anything like what these people claim Christian nationalists want. So here's, I think, really what is at stake at the end of the day. The left wants to influence culture with their religion, which is the religion of secular humanism. And we are not a secular culture and have never been. We are a culture that makes room for secular people, but the separation of church and state does not mean that religious ideas have no place in the public square or in, in the political realm. So I hope it doesn't take too much justification, but as I've said before, there is religious ideas in the public square and in political circles. They just happen to be non-Christian. So the fact that you're isolating Christianity as one of those uh, ideas that should not be allowed in the public square means that just frankly, you're a bigot. And the point uh, of all of this, and maybe the biggest point that I want to try to leave you with, with is this, is that all this leads to the conclusion that these individuals, because Christian nationalism, at least in the sense that they think it exists, doesn't exist. Um, it means that, that they're really after something different. Now, I can't speak for Rob Reiner because I just think he's a loony leftist. But what about those supposed Christians, those progressive Christians that um, are on this documentary who want to do their best to try to undermine Christians who actually believe that they should make the world a better place and Christianity is the best way to do that? Those Christians like Phil Vischer, what are they really after at the end of the day? Well, I think... They're after two things. One, they're after envy because they have not changed the world by and large and made a real difference. And Christians right now who are fighting the culture war, who are protecting babies from abortion and who are protecting small children from gender clinics and supposed gender affirming care, which is really mutilating care. Um, those Christians are actually really deeply effective in ways that Christians in the past just absolutely were not. And I think that those who are decrying Christian nationalism are really just envious of the difference that real Christians are making that they were, were never able to make. And then the other thing that I think they're after is, and I think this could probably will get wide agreement, is they're after relevance. They love the adulation that the left gives them every time they agree with them. The strange unity that these Christians find with people who basically hate Christianity and everything that it stands for. Um, is should give them a sinking sense of unease, but it really doesn't because they love to be loved. They love the likes on social media and the relevance that comes to them when they take these positions that hate on churches and Christians who actually take their faith seriously because they're really after themselves at the end of the day and not after the truth. They're after being celebrated rather than after actually making a difference. Guys like Phil Vischer will sell their soul for likes and views and sell the truth in the process. 
So in this world of lies, truth is forced to fly like a sacred white doe in the woodlands, and only by cunning glimpses will she reveal herself, as in Shakespeare and in other masters of great art, of telling the truth, even though it be covertly and by snatches. That was Herman Melville, by the way. Now, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds cool. And if it does mean anything, I think it means that the truth has always been something you have to squint to see. So don't accept what you hear at face value. It has never come easy and it won't come easy. It takes effort, it takes work, it takes independent thought, and it takes research and maybe even, I know, reading. Therefore, don't make it easy for these imposters who are trying to peddle their wares by falling for their simple lies. Think better. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and go with God.